Today's On Shuffle episode is brought to you by Belvedere Vodka. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere Vodka is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives. Recognized for quality, Belvedere Vodka was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Thus, we're very excited to have Belvedere Vodka as the sponsor of On Shuffle. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. Oh, yes, indeed. Welcome back to another episode of On Shuffle. I am your host, Micah Peters. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Great website. And today, we are going to be talking about Future's new mixtape, Beast Mode 2, with my boss's boss's boss, Sean Fennessy. And in addition, I will be talking to my colleague, Victor Lukerson, about Boot Up by LMI, which is kind of in the front running for Song of the Summer. And we're actually next month going to have a discussion on what the definitive Song of the Summer is. I'm also going to toss you some recommendations to listen to this weekend while you're cooking or diving in the pool or trying to beat the heat somewhere or just riding around in your car. Let's get into it. Have you heard that song before? Of course you have. It's booed up by LMI. It's entering its seventh week at the top of the Billboard Hot and R&B charts, and it looks to be in contention for Song of the Summer. Today, we're going to talk about why. We're also going to try to answer a few questions like, how does a song from an EP released in February 2017 become the song that you struggle to keep yourself from singing in public well over a year later? What causes long dormant singles to suddenly pop? And more generally, how does a viral hit happen? My colleague and streaming chart whisperer, Victor Lukerson, who ain't got all the answers, does have a lot of them. Victor, how you doing today, man? I'm good, Micah. How you doing? I am doing great. Struggling to keep myself from singing boot up, as you probably just heard me talking about. <laughs> it's, um, it's an earworm, man. It's hard, it's hard to escape. Yeah, so the song itself is by... LMI, who, as I said, comes from the UK, and she was discovered by DJ Mustard singing Keep Your Head Up by Tupac on Instagram, and she released three EPs full of songs. Did you know that? I had no idea she had been around that long. Yeah. I actually did not even realize it was such an old song until pretty recently, because, you know, you assume when a song of the summer hits, it's like brand new. The thing about this 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 song, Boot Up, becoming as big as it is, is the fact that there's like no real like narrative or context or anything. Like you were saying, it feels like it's something that's like brand new and completely out of nowhere. When was the last time that a leading candidate for Song of the Summer had such an unassuming rise, do you think? The first thing I thought about was uh, Trap Cream by Fetty Wap. I'll be in the kitchen cooking pies. I'm like, hey, what's up, hello? I guess that was 2015. That song actually had dropped like a year before it actually blew up that summer. So that was another one of those songs that just sort of seemed to like materialize from yeah. nowhere. No one really knew like where Fetty Wap would come from. He didn't seem to have like a particular like major label backing. So that was my first thought when I heard about this song being really old. It was like, oh, Fet like the Trap King was definitely one of those songs too that just kind of like was dormant and then just like exploded without anybody really understanding how or why. Yeah, especially since it's basically 
the same verse three times <laughs> right. over and over. But anyway, like, do you remember Cheerleader by Omi? They say, do you need me? Do you think I'm pretty? Do I make you feel like cheating? I'm like, no, not really. Cause, oh, I think that I found myself a cheerleader. She is always right there when I need her. This Jamaican singer, Omi, originally recorded this song called Cheerleader in 2008. And it was released in 2012. And I remember because it like it came across, I came across it in like a mix of other songs. It was just like a Jamaican pop song. And then it was re-released in 2014 on the back of this Felix Jane remix and Mm -hmm. became the number one song of like the summer of 2015. And Looking back at like the chart history of that summer, it beat out Can't Feel My Face by The Weeknd, Bad Blood by Taylor Swift, Lean On by Major Lazer, and Trap Queen by Fetty Wap, actually. Wow. That's wild. That just feels like a whole dichotomy that could not have existed 15 or 20 years ago when we were still buying CDs like at the at the record store, even on iTunes, you know? Right. So I mean, like, what do you what is that what would you most attribute that change to? Hey, there's so much more music out there and there's so many more ways to access music. So I think that just gives artists who are maybe not necessarily part of the traditional record label machinery an opportunity to have their stuff accessed, whether that's via SoundCloud. You know, we have this whole genre of Sound, SoundCloud rappers now. Um, XXXTentacion, obviously the most famous one, but mm-hmm. Lil Pump and these other guys too. So there's just so many people out there now who are having their music accessed by all these different venues. So I think that's part of it. But then also there's the fact that like the people who are sort of part of the record label machinery can also be the ones that help sort of like launch these songs into like a bigger stratosphere, right? Right. So um, Boot Up, for example, A, was already a big song, but it's become even bigger over the last, you know, several weeks because you've had all these really high-profile remixes of it. Um, so I think having that kind of like celebrity machinery backing up the songs from people from lower profiles helps those songs to spread even further, basically. That at least partly explains like how a song from... So like over a year ago, uh, quote unquote, suddenly pops. But I mean, like how big of a factor would you say like playlisting is? Or I mean, like what about terrestrial radio? I mean, like does that still matter in terms of hit creation? Yeah, I think it's hard with radio. I don't know. I did a story earlier this year actually about Lil Pump's rise. I talked to a bunch of people in the record industry and they were talking about how it really is like Spotify in particular is like the number one thing they they look at when they're thinking about sort of like who's bubbling up, who's like about to blow up. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely like this, it's definitely this dynamic where, you know, I guess an artist might emerge, maybe like it's like via SoundCloud or something first, but sort of like Spotify is sort of, I guess that nexus point in between sort of being in like the underbelly of the internet and being like on the radio where they're trying to identify, this is the person who's found an audience on a monetizable platform and we can like take them to the next level on radio. Mm-hmm. So I really think, at least when the, in terms of like when the labels are looking for like who they want to identify that's going to have the big hits, they're really looking at Spotify in particular because, I mean, there's Spotify and Apple Music, but obviously Spotify has at least double the user base, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been interesting even talking to people in the industry who aren't necessarily as, you know, attuned to the the rhythms of the youth as, you know, Children, teenagers themselves are, mm-hmm. but even even they're saying that Spotify matters more than radio these days, right? But I mean, like, also, it's not something that you can totally negate. I mean, the rise of boot up was kind of this weird amalgam of all of those things, where 
there was playlisting, but also she opened up for Kehlani on the Sweet Sexy Savage tour. And then also mm. she constantly was tweeting her followers to request the song on the radio. There's actually this really good anecdote at the beginning of this piece about the song by Elias Late, where it was like this image of Big Vaughn, this Bay Area DJ, the wee hours of the morning in the club, like where it's just kind of like, you got to play the, the record at 1 a.m. then sends the place up. And somebody requests boot right. up and he played it. And he said, I've never seen a reaction like this. When I played it, the whole place went, woo. I saw a fat dude do a cartwheel, a solid cartwheel. <laughs> he didn't even fall. Security comes over to me like, what the hell is this? So oh my God. it's kind of like it's had all of those things in it. That's a crazy story because actually I remember, so I live in Atlanta now, but before I lived there, I visited once in like spring 2015 and I was at a club in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And they played this song at like 2 a.m. And everybody in the club lost their mind to this song that I had never heard before. And it was Trap Queen by Fetty Wap <laughs> about two months before it like took over the charts. <laughs> in terms of like streaming rules were amenable to larger projects. So you saw artists kind of gaming the charts using like releasing 25 song albums. Hi, Drake. What is the equivalent of that if you're just talking about a single? Like, how can you game the charts with a single? Like, Boot Up is now creeping up on 127 million views on YouTube, the music video, that is. Well, I mean, part of it actually involves going viral. I guess the first example of this would have been Harlem Shake. Remember that really horrible meme from, like, 2012? <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. That Harlem Shake by... Bauer. Thank Bauer. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Bauer. The DJ. A public service announcement. There is the 2001 version of the Harlem Shake by G-Dev. <laughs> and then there are 50 feet the of crap. version. <laughs> and then there's the, the Bauer version of Harlem Shake. I brought up the bastardized Harlem Shake because, you know, that song went viral and you had people doing the Harlem Shake challenge or whatever. And at the time, Bilbo was like, oh, we need to find a way to capture this virality. So they changed their rules to basically say that when all those people are sampling the song to do their memes, it's going to count towards uh, that song's charting. Mm -hmm. So Harlem Shake became a really big hit, even though people were really using it to make their own memes, not really to listen to the song. And it became a hit via that method. Mm -hmm. So that's also, I mean, that's been, obviously memes have become much, much bigger since that time period. So you've also seen the same dynamic happen with songs like Black Beatles, which is basically the soundtrack for the Mannequin Challenge uh, a couple years ago, and helped that song both become more popular in and of itself, but also chart higher because... All those people sampling it for their memes were actually helping Ray Shermer get paid. Right. It's also funny how sometimes this dynamic could even just judge up really old songs. Like, you remember the So Gone Challenge from a couple summers ago? Uh, yes, I do remember that. Silly of me Devoted so much time To find you a faithful boy That was like Monica's So Gone from 2004 or something. Mm -hmm. And... I think that song ended up charting again uh, thanks to people going online and rapping over the instrumental. Because like I said, like when people do that, it ends up like actually counting for the song streams. To go back to what you were saying about Spotify, figuring so importantly into the rise of certain artists and having certain artists become profitable, like Lil Pump. There were also right. changes that you were talking to me about off the air, about certification for what exactly an album equivalent is now. Because it used to be kind of like this one-size-fits-all deal for both the Hot 100 and the Billboard 200? I mean, big picture, 
Billboard's been confused about how to tabulate streaming like from the jump, basically. And for a long time, they've had this standard of uh, 1,500 streams equals an album sale. And there's also a standard for the Hot 100, but the Hot 100 formula is like a closely guarded secret, a mix of streaming, uh, download sales, and airplay. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, they basically said one, one, all streams were equiv- equivalent, whether it was somebody who was paying, uh, had paid for Spotify and was streaming or someone who was on YouTube and streaming. And starting this week, actually, they're changing it so that if you are using a paid service, so that's like Spotify premium tier, Apple Music, uh, Tidal for the five people out there using Tidal, uh, <laughs> it's going to be counting more than if you're using a free service. So that would be like YouTube or the free tier of Spotify. So basically, you're going to have like the music elite who have their Apple Music on their iPhone iPhone Xs having more say over the charts versus the YouTube masses, basically. Right. So in the streaming rule shakeup where uh, on-demand streaming or paid services are weighted more in the consideration towards how many album sales an artist has, how does that affect the artists that are making music in their bedroom, the aforementioned SoundCloud rappers, so to speak? It could turn out to not be a great situation for them because when you think about who's paying for streaming versus who's not, uh, the people who are going to be paying for Spotify, Apple Music are probably going to tend to be older and more affluent, whereas the people who are streaming stuff on SoundCloud or YouTube are going to be the younger people who are the ones who are obsessed with XXXTentacion or Lil Pump or those artists. So you might see, I mean, I think one interesting thing about what's happened over the last decade or so is that because of uh, digital services, you've seen all these like emerging artists who came from nowhere um, at the top of the charts. Mm -hmm. And with this sort of tilt back towards more traditional like gatekeepers, paid services, you might see those artists sort of fall back and get back to a situation where the industry-backed Beyonce's, Drake's of the world are the ones topping the charts all the time versus maybe the people who are coming from out of nowhere. So it'll be interesting to see like exactly how that dynamic shakes out. This week's chart's actually going to be the first ones with the new uh, weights, but it's also going to be the first week that includes uh, Scorpion. So it's going to be just like 20 Scorpion songs. It'll be able to take a little bit longer to see how things actually shake out. Right. Was there a specific instance that like caused this rule change or is it just kind of like the accretion of a bunch of really random number ones and a lot of fussing, fussing over, you know, how streaming is deregulated? I would imagine there's probably due to pressure from the labels because the major labels do not like YouTube and they do not like the free tier of Spotify. And, you know, it's in their interest to make those things less relevant because they want artists to think they have to be on Apple Music where this stuff's going to get monetized or on paid, the pay tier of Spotify. Mm. So I think when you think about the industry, like even though we've seen all these new emerging artists, that's been good for individual artists, but not necessarily good for like the record industry, quote unquote. So they're definitely trying to figure out ways in which to sort of get people back corralled into the paid services where they can make money. So my guess is that they were probably the ones who wanted to make sure that Apple Music and paid Spotify are more important than YouTube or SoundCloud. So this is sort of a win-win for Spotify because they also don't make any money on the free tier. Exactly. Spotify, just as much as the labels, wants people to be paying for music in order to make their business model work. With waiting the streams on paid subscription services and these kind of, is a thing that's good for both streaming services and labels, but also it kind of gives them greater star-making power, right? For sure. Especially when you consider that the labels are already exerting a lot of power over playlists in subtle ways. Like they're sort of the playlist revolution is kind of interesting because on one hand it sort of helps propel 
I saw my boot up, um, which went from relative obscurity to being a viral hit um, over the summer. But on the other hand, when you look at a, a place like Rap Caviar, uh, which is sort of well known for like deciding what's going to be a hit in a lot of ways, um, something something like half of the songs on Rap Caviar are there the first week they debut, mm-hmm. which means instead of being, you know, discovered by some uh, enterprising Spotify curator, there must have been a deal made between a label and Spotify uh-huh. uh, to get that song on that playlist. Mm-hmm. Um, the the entire like Drake Scorpion push being so big that uh, Spotify users were like wanted to sue the company for like over marketing to them. That's like an example of like a label overreach basically on these digital right, services. Because I mean, like he was the top banner, he was the face on every playlist, even the playlist that he wasn't actually on. Right? Yeah, yeah. people were getting like push alerts about him. It was like. Super thirsty in a very Drake way, but no one no one asked for that, though. I mean, he's always done whatever it takes to win, I guess. I mean, talking about the other ways in which you can reach ubiquity, take one dance, for instance. That's why I need a one dance. Got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time before I go. Higher powers taking a hold on me. Finding a way to transcend regionality just by having a featured artist that's from a different country. Say Justin Bieber hopping on Despacito. Definitely artists are getting more savvy about, it's almost like the music version of how every movie now is like made for China as well as the United States. I feel like artists are sort of thinking on, the, on that global scale too, where they're trying to figure out how they're going to position their work to get streamed, not only in the United States, but everywhere else in the world. Yeah, it's a great answer, actually. You and I, we're going to make a number one hit now that we know exactly what we're supposed to do with it. Yeah, I mean, we got, we got all the ingredients. We just need... <laughs> one of us just needs musical ability. That's it. Small, right. tiny, insignificant detail. Victor, thank you very much for coming on to talk about Boot Up and to try to parse exactly how a hit becomes viral or how a viral hit happens. Appreciate you, man. All right, thanks a lot, Micah. Good talking to you. All right, man, you take it easy. All right, guys, in a second, we're going to talk about future. Future. But first, I want to talk about one of our sponsors. Solo New York is one of the biggest bag brands in the country. They started in 2008 with a commitment to shake up the boring industry and make cool, thoughtfully designed bags to keep everyone moving in style. Solo's designs are uniquely inspired by the streets of New York. There's a bag for everyone. From backpacks, tablet cases, briefcases, totes, duffels, and more, like the Varsity Peak backpack, which I have been using for a couple of weeks, actually. Makes me feel like I'm a character in a Bourne movie, like I'm en route from Berlin to Vienna going to chase down a nondescript bad guy with a thumb drive. If you want your own Peak backpack, I know you do. Head to solo-my.com shuffle to shop from hundreds of designs and get 25% off your order. Again, that's solo-my.com shuffle for 25% off. I'm your majesty, that's how I gotta be Get more liberty, should be proud of me What I'm supposed to do when these rats blue ooh, ooh, ooh. What I'm supposed to do when these rats blue ooh, ooh, ooh. What I'm supposed to do when these rats blue Rap's favorite miserable hedonist, also known as He Whose Sprite is the Dirtiest Future returned last Friday He dropped Beast Mode 2, a sequel to 2015's Excellent Excellent! Beast Mode 1, which I guess is actually just Beast Mode, but it was part of that mixtape run that established Future as one of the most prolific, hardest working figures in rap. Beast Mode 2 is just nine songs, 
picked from a batch of 100 that Future and Zaytoven recorded over the last two years, and it clocks in at just over a blistering half hour. I'm absolutely sure that I miss Future. I spent this weekend tweeting and deleting lyrics. Uh, but what I'll try to zero in on with my boss and register good opinions about music haver Sean Fennessy <laughs> is whether or not this is a return to form for the Trap Impresario, and what does this mean for his forthcoming album? So, Sean. Micah, yes. How nice was it to just be able to enjoy music this past weekend without the intrusion of like narrative or celebrity gossip, with the exception of the stuff about Scotty Pippen's wife, which was on TMZ. I'm not sure how much we want to get into that. That's a very good question though, right? Because last time I was here, we were talking about Ye. Yes. The, um, I think we can now say completely bungled Kanye West album. Bungled is a, is almost a generous term. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. Honestly, when the record came out, I was on a long drive to summer league from Las Vegas. Would we call this like a dark night of the soul if you're driving through the desert listening to future? Love or? to drive and tweet. <laughs> Love to drive and tweet. Uh, no, I, sort of, I guess so. I mean, it was honestly more exuberance. It was excitement. It was like, I listened to Beast Mode 2, and then I just started going back in time, listening to each record each record sequentially in reverse. Mm, um, okay. And it just revealed how actually not incon- as inconsistent I thought he was. He actually is. He's actually much more consistent in his releases than I think I presumed. And part of it is because he, you know, he switches styles from time to time, switches flows from time to time. The purpose of the project is different, so it's easy to narrativize. Mm-hmm. But just going through 150, 180 records through that four-hour drive, I was like, all of this is good. Uh, I don't feel that way about anybody. I'm pretty choosy when it comes to rap. But Beast well, Mode 2. Yeah, let's talk about Beast Mode 2. Why does Future sound so re-energized? We're talking about how you were just like, I, this, is, this is a great tape. I love this. this everything about this is great. Okay, so here's why. The Superfly soundtrack comes out a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Something like 25 songs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a Drake record of a soundtrack in that it's like unconquerable, mediocre at times, themeless, formless. But has high points like Bag with Young Benz. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. there, there are records that you like, but it requires curation. Beast Mode 2 is, like you said, less than 30 minutes. It is one producer. It is just Zaytoven. I think Future and Zaytoven have an amazing creative collaboration that's ongoing for many years. Right, it's kind of like his perfect, like the the fleet playing of the keys that is sort of like emotional, but also with the really knocking drums is exactly the perfect space for Future to exist in. You know, that, that melody with those drums is also kind of what Future's rap persona is, right? It's mm-hmm. this like very wounded, sad, astral experience mixed with this just extremely rude, somewhat evil point of view. Mm. And when those two things collide, it it makes for just a very unique rap persona. There's not anybody like him. And the fact that he still is able to maintain it in this way is is amazing to me. Right. But nine tracks is kind of the perfect length. Or did you wish there were more? Or is it exactly right? It's funny. We just went through this, right, with the seven-song album for a month. And... I think it's fair to say that for the most part in all those records, it actually felt too slight. Mm-hmm. And that said, I grew up on a lot of records that had 18 songs, and that is way too many. <laughs> and I'm not necessarily such a snob about length versus value, but nine is a really good number. The first beast mode is also nine, mm-hmm. and there seems to be some nice synchronicity there. And I don't know, it's it's just, it leaves me wanting more, which is a skill. And Future doesn't always always give us that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he overloads, and in this case, he did not. Yeah, but even though that, like, these are essentially throwaways tracks that are preceding a forthcoming Future album, which 
what does that say? I don't. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is just as good as that. He's that damn one. talented. I don't know. You know, it's like if you can make Rax Blue, I don't. Do you have to make an album? I don't. It doesn't matter. It's you if made you can Rax have Blue. People like just crying on a Friday in an Uber on the way to a bar, which I'm not saying that I did <laughs> or did not do. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it definitely, there's there's no telling. I mean, it's kind of, he had back-to-back number one albums last last year. Let me, let me posit a theory to you. Mm-hmm. This is not a criticism. Yes. Uh, there's a baseball player in the 1980s. His name's Eddie Murray. Familiar with Eddie Murray? You know I'm not. Okay. Eddie Murray played for a number of teams. Played for the Indians, played for the Orioles, played for the Mets. It's a first baseman. Mm-hmm. Slugger. Hit over 500 home, home runs in his career. Maybe 480, somewhere in that vicinity. Hit three, 300. He was never the best player in the league. Mm-hmm. But he was always there. He made like 10 all-star teams. He was consistent. And at the end of his career, when they started evaluating his Hall of Fame credentials, one of the criticisms that Eddie Murray got it from time to time was that he was a compiler. You know, he was somebody who just stacked consistent stats on top of one another. Mm-hmm. And that there was somehow no, not, not enough highs and not enough lows, but he was just always there. Mm-hmm. And... That said, as a Mets fan, I would kill to have an Eddie Murray now. I would kill to have a compiler. <laughs> and I feel like Future is kind of a compiler. He just is relentless in terms of his release dates. He doesn't even seem that strategic. He just sort of knows that. Yeah, spontaneity is definitely like a hallmark of. Yes. And I think if Beast Mode 2, if I had been anticipating it for nine months, I would have been like, okay, this just sounds like another Future tape. Mm-hmm. But the out of nowhereness in this case really helps him. So I don't know. Do you, do you have a similar relationship to him in that way? Well, yeah. I mean, like, well, it's kind of every now and again, like, I forget exactly how old Future is and I have to Google it. Like, How old is he? I don't know. He's 34. Oh, God bless. Yeah, he's one, wow. he's one year younger. He's one year younger than Lil Wayne, which wow. I was not even, I was just like, wow. And it's so funny that you say that because when you were discussing about how he recorded 100 songs for Beast Mode 2, the first thing that came to my mind was he really is like a child of Lil Wayne, you know, in that run in 2007 where he was making so many songs. He's a child of like Wayne and Gucci that were having that same sort of output. And Very much. Let's talk about your, yeah, your tweet from from this past Friday. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to read it. Okay. Ruthless, relentless, routinely medicated, moneyed, casually dismayed, utterly impolitic. Future is the rapper of the decade. The first response I got to that mm-hmm. from a handful of people was, cool, but Kendrick. Right. Which I didn't say that Future is the best rapper of the decade or the most important rapper of the decade. I said he was the rapper of the decade. And this is very pur- purposeful because he's emblematic of a kind of persona, a kind of online persona, a kind of mm-hmm. real life persona that is evident in the last 10 years of American society. Now that's obviously grandiose and pretentious, but I honestly think that it's true. And the way that he has lived his life, the collision of the celebrity in his life, the way that he's communicated about certain things and withheld certain things, the style and approach he has taken to making music and the way he sounds on that music. So if we go back from uh, the first Dirty Sprite mixtape up to his first album, Honest, which was just him in happy monogamy. And they had the single with uh, uh, Kanye where they had, they both had a song called I Won and they were both talking about his engagement to Sierra, uh, Kanye's engagement to Kim Kardashian. And it was awkward, but it was, I mean, like it was a good album, but Monster was kind of like a return to basics for him. Very much. I mean, I think it actually redefined him. I think the, that little triumvirate of tapes that comes, you know, Monster and and Beastman uh, 56 Nights with Esco mm-hmm. and March Madness is a redefinition. Because for a lot of people prior to that point, Pluto and Tony Montana 
and those hits, I think he was a little bit of a character. Mm-hmm. You know, he was kind of performing over the top. And people knew that, you know, he had roots in Dungeon Family and that he was Atlanta, but also that he was a little bit older and that there was something kind of performative about what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think the minute he started leaning more aggressively into some of that astronaut status sadness mixed with some of that aggression in that period, mm-hmm. he, he kind of unlocked something, at least for me. And it seemed like for a lot of critics and, and even for fans, like Honest is a good record and had hits on it. And Move That Dope was one of my favorite singles that year. But it didn't have a lot to do with future. It that's had true. a lot to do with everything around him. And that's pretty much the last time that happened. I mean, every, everything he's been involved with since, he's really the centerpiece of it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, but I mean, like also you're saying that he's kind of a reflection of or emblematic of the time, so to speak. And the sound. Too. And the sound, yeah. uh, but also just kind of like the the compulsion to shit post on social media about your mental health instead of actually solving your problems. Honestly, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, very willing to talk about the way that he has medicated himself, very willing to drop a mixtape, say, on the anniversary of his ex and his ex's new husband's uh, anniversary. Like, that's a pretty, that's a slick move, yeah. you know? And yeah. it's there's no doubt in my mind that it's purposeful. The party line is just that, like, he's basically trying to exercise his demons and talking about how he self-medicates and we're going to dance regardless. Yeah. What do you? How do you feel about that? Because he obviously predates the sad boy revolution that we're living through right now, though I think in some ways he's probably influential to some of those artists. You know, do you think that there is, a, like, a lineage that he is creating? And, and that's also related to Wayne probably as well. It's undeniably a lineage that he's created. I mean, like, he was tweeting as the mixtape was coming out. First, enough of these little niggas running around like I make y'all. I gracefully gave you a style to run with like it was your own. Thank me. Hashtag King Pluto. Now, there's other people that used autotune to sing rap before he did, but he is absolutely the best at it. Agree. Absolutely, you can say that he has created a lineage of a new crop of uh, up-and-coming sad boy rappers, so to speak. So, Dirty Sprite 2 is first number one on the Billboard Hot 200 chart, then had two back-to-back number one albums in 2017. And then, I mean, like, now he has his own movie soundtrack, and now this mixtape. I mean, like, where, what space does Future occupy, like, in the rap? Like, who is, who are his contemporary? Who is he directly competing against? It's a very good question. I never think of him in this way. I never think of him in comparison to someone else. Because I don't think, I think while he's, all all those moves you outlined Mm -hmm. are kind of, are almost tropes. You know, they're, um... I was trying to think of him on the continuum of like Jay-Z. Like where does, where, where does beast mode fit in the Jay-Z continuum? Is like, is it volume three? Is it, <laughs> is it, uh, it's not the blueprint, but it's not volume two. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a pop explosion, but it's not this sort of like soulful reckoning. That's probably an unfair comparison to make because Future's not Jay-Z. He's not really any other artist and you can't really compare him because he, he's the same age as Wayne and he's older than Drake. And yet somehow yet he feels younger yes. and, and both he, he sounds younger, but also feels like wisened and older and like a sage. Yeah. Of like, well, he gets to stay an underdog while being at the top of the game, which I think is integral to his staying power. I, feel like. I agree. He's also one of the most elusive media figures in rap history. There's never really truly been a definitive story of future. You know, there's never been that like a long for me. There've been good long pieces about him and there've been, a lot of stories about kind of the quest to get him to sit down to talk. Mm-hmm. I can think of a couple off the top of my head, but he he just has not really revealed his skeletons in any meaningful way. There's never been a two-hour documentary about the life and times of future, and there may never be. Yeah. And so that gives him a, an ability to stand alone. So you're just going to have to believe that he sold that raw to his auntie um, because well, he said it in a song. <laughs> I believe it. 
Is there something you'd want to see from him? Like, I, I always thought, even though What a Time to Be Alive hasn't necessarily aged perfectly, mm-hmm. I always thought that that was an interesting and good left turn for him. And it, it really, it boosted him in the, in the minds of a lot of pop fans like, who, are not, who are not yet aware of him. Can I pitch an idea? Mm-hmm. I feel like Nicki Minaj is in a bit of a wayward moment. And I'm going to be careful about the way I phrase this, given the dialogue around Nicki Minaj of late. But I wonder if... Nikki could use someone, a change agent like Future in her life to reanimate some of the things that make Nikki effective because Nikki is is a burst, a flame mm-hmm. of ideas mm-hmm. and voices and ecstasy. And Future is, of course, the coruscating, burning flames on the ground. <laughs> and... <laughs> The fireball hitting the ground, I think, could be effective. I, w- I would want to hear what that sounds like. Now, that's obviously just fantasy baseball for rap, but I-, I feel like he has an ability to bring people to a ground level that could be really valuable. And frankly, I mean, we could say this for Kanye, too. I wonder what, what that would sound like, although I'm not sure that's I don't savable really, at this point. Yeah, I don't really want that at yeah. this point in time. But they are going on tour together. Um, maybe a joint project will come out of that. They, I feel like that was an internet rumor going for a while. You have to think that they'll be recording some stuff together since they'll they be on tour. To. Yeah, they have to. Okay, so from this tape, from these nine songs, which is the song that you're going to be playing on repeat until you hate it? Cut on my wrist is up there. Cut on my, cut, cut on my, cut on, cut on my wrist, cut on my bitch, cut on my wrist, cut on my bitch. Cut on my wrist is up there. I think when I think about it. You're more of a young scooter head than I am. But I am absolutely going to be playing Dodo forever. Yeah, I, I feel that's like. where I figured you were going. Take no days off. I get Dodo. Get the AK off. Swinging Dodo. 36 ounces raw. I smell blow, blow, blow. I like Dodo. But we can't stop this podcast without at least talking about briefly about Hate the Real Me, mm-hmm. which is. Would you say that it has the most devastating lyrics on the album? Why don't you read some? Right, so this is the chorus of Hate the Real Me as I'm trying to get high as I can, I'm trying to get high as I can, I'm trying to get high as I can. You get the idea. Showing out in public, show the real me. Pulling up in public, damn, I hate the real me. My mama's stressing out, she say these drugs got me. And I ain't been the same since that nigga shot me. It's just kind of like him talking about pouring up in public. Um, damn, I hate the real me. Talking about, he said his mother says these drugs got me. I've met the same since that nigga shot me. These are like, this is not music for happy people. Kind no. of like in the same vein of like Cody and crazy at the end of Monster. And verse two on this song is probably the most devastating part of it because it, it feels like lamentations at, after a marriage. You know, it feels like a, a, a set of lyrics directly aimed at Sierra. Like it, it's... Let me tell you, let me tell the world how much I care for you. I painted a picture, gave a style to you. I took a chance when you had miles on you. I should have fucked and blowed some loud on you. Like, that's, that's, that's unfortunate. That's it's dark. It's a tough way to talk about the, the mother, the mother, mother of your child. child. Yeah. Um, now, who knows if that's actually what he's referring to. But, you know, future, as I said, in politics, he'll do what he wants. He'll say what he wants and insinuate what he wants. So it's tough. I mean, I think he's probably a depressive type, which makes him a useful figure in these times. Well, 
thank you for coming on to talk about uh, future and to, you know, recite lyrics with me. It's always a fun time. What a joy. Rapper uh, of the decade, podcast of the decade. <laughs> uh, and for everybody that's listening, y'all should go revisit the Jug King mixtape. Um, Young Scooters project that came out in 2017. It's really good. <laughs> Thanks, Micah. Thank you. All right. So we've just spent a while talking about future and I've already recommended the Young Scooter mixtape to you, but I have more recommendations for that ass. A release that you might have missed was uh, from Los Angeles rapper uh, by way of Watts 03 Greedo. Uh, he put out his final album before serving a 20-year jail sentence called God Level, and it is a triumph as Paul Thompson writes for The Rolling Stone. You should actually read his review too. It's amazing. One from the crates. This three-piece set EP by Currency and Thelonious Martin that I listen to every time the temperature goes above 75 degrees. It sounds perfect. It samples like this old Arthur Verakai album that I've already recommended to you, but three songs. Uh, it's called the three-piece set. Listen to that. And then in addition, you know, like if you're going to be by a pool this this weekend, I mean, like, I don't know, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but either case, you should listen to the Jungle album from 2014. Kind of sounds a little bit like Jamiroquai, and they're actually putting out a new album, I believe. Uh, there's already a lead single called Happy Man, but... You should absolutely listen to Jungle first. And then you should watch the music video for Platoon, which is just this little girl in a pink velour jumpsuit, like, b-boying. It's amazing. I watch it a lot. That's the show. That's it, man. That's all we got. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Victor Lucasen and Sean Fennessy for stopping by. Shout out my producers, Zach Mack and Agia Chagre. Don't forget to check out our playlist that we will be updating every week with the songs that we're listening to. A link to that is in the description. Also, shout out to Pigeons and Planes and The Guardian for putting us in your essential music podcast list. It's really appreciated. And for those of you that haven't read those, go read them. You know, they say some nice things about us. And also, please rate and subscribe. If you like the show, we would really appreciate it. That's it. Peace, peace. <laughs>